0: Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. God, our Father, we pray that your will would be done in us. Jesus, the living word, we pray that you will be glorified. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our teacher. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. A few years ago, there was a Windex commercial which showed a man asleep on a couch And while he slept, the woman that appears to be his wife, do you guys know the commercial I'm talking about? The woman that appears to be his wife comes in the room, and she starts spraying the windows and the glass doors and cleaning them. And as she cleans, the room gets brighter and brighter. The man just stays fast asleep. But when he wakes up, the room looks so different because there's so much light in the room now. And he wakes up, and he sits up, and he goes, this is not my house. This is not my house, and he goes to run out and runs face first into a glass door, and the first time I saw that commercial, Amy and I lived in Philadelphia at the time, and I mean, I about lost it in laughter. It was so funny, but that is my hope this morning in preaching Colossians 1 is that we would be like that sleeping man, that this text would be the Windex that the Holy Spirit uses to let light in on a a very important subject And that when we wake from our slumber, we would look around and we would say, this isn't my life. This is not my church. This is Jesus' church. This is his blood-bought life. It belongs to him. Amen? So when we open our Bibles, it's important for us to make every effort to understand the context of what we're reading. So our text today was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul to the church at Colossae. It was a a very healthy church. It wasn't one that he had planted, uh, but a friend of his, Epaphras, had pastored this church. It was being threatened, though, by false teaching that sought to creep in. And so Epaphras goes to Paul, most likely in a Roman prison cell, and he says, can you write my church a letter of encouragement and just remind them of the gospel? And so Paul does that now, we don't know with absolute certainty what this unbiblical teaching was, but we can gather from a, a few key verses in Colossians what kind of things were being pushed on them. Colossians 2.4 calls whatever this teaching was a persuasive argument. In chapter 2, verse 8, Paul refers to it as philosophy, and empty deception. Tradition of men, elementary principles of the world. In verse 18 of chapter 2, we begin to get a more specific picture of the unbiblical teaching that Paul is concerned with. He tells them, quote, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. That self-abasement probably refers to some kind of extra-biblical abstinence, some kind of fasting that was not required uh, that's referenced in chapter 2, verse 21, where he quotes these false teachers saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In addition to the self-abasement, this, this flagellation, this uh, restricting ourselves from things that God has given us, in addition to that, uh, Paul continues in verse 18 by, re- by citing the worship of angels and, quote, claiming access to a visionary realm. And again, in verse 23, Paul acknowledges that these claims indeed had an appearance of wisdom. In a nutshell, the false teachings that faced the Colossian church were man-made constraints and regulations. It was a false gospel of self-righteousness. And it was in this context that Paul was writing to remind them and to reaffirm them in the gospel that they had received. So to do this, Paul moves from creation to final consummation at the last day. It's, it's a very logical flow of thought. He starts at creation, and he goes through to the end. To borrow a, a phrase from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, many of you might be familiar with this line. Paul begins at the beginning, and he goes till he comes to the end, and then he stops. So, we're going to take a cue from Paul in doing that. Listen again to Paul's words in Colossians 1. We're going to read verses 15 through 17 again. It says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Paul begins at the beginning in order to remind the believers at Colossae that Jesus is the creator of everything, both material and physical. And he echoes the apostle John's words in his prologue to his gospel. In John 1 verse 3, John writes, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we're going to look chronologically from creation until now. And we're going to see what we can learn about Christ first. And then we're going to see what we can learn about ourselves in light of who Christ is. We can't really understand who we are unless we understand who Christ is. That's where we begin. Yes? Okay. Dave's Dave's on on board with that. In verse 15, Paul describes Jesus as the image of of the invisible God. Well, what does that mean? Paul is making explicit reference here to the language used in Genesis one twenty six, where God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And the word that we have translated here in Colossians as image is the same word used for a die to cast a coin. You may recall from Matthew 22 when the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, we know that the Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus, but Jesus turns it upside down, and he responds by showing them a coin. And whose image is on that coin? Caesar. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. If we are created in God's image, whose are we? We're not our own right? So we learn from Paul's language here, not merely what God looks like in Jesus, but what God is like. We don't just learn about appearance because God doesn't have form the way that we do. We learn about his character. As countless preachers have said, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus told Philip in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. This does not mean that the Father and the Son are the same person, though. As we confessed just a few moments ago in the Nicene Creed, Jesus is of the same essence, though, as the Father. They are eternally distinct. But Jesus is God. He's not the Father, and He's not the Spirit but Jesus is God. Boy, I could wax eloquent on this all day long, but Jesus isn't one-third God. Jesus is God. Hard stop. He isn't merely made in God's image as we are. He is the image of the invisible God. And this is critically important for the believers at Colossae. When they're being faced with false teaching, it's critically important for them to understand this. And, and if it's important for them in the first century, they didn't even have the completed canon of Scripture. If it was important for them to understand, how much more important do you think it still is today to know that Jesus is God? He didn't become God at some point in history. He has always been God. And this is Paul's objective in writing. And man, it is so easy for us to buy the enemy's lie and to take the bait. What was the first lie that was told in the garden? Did God really say if you do this or that, that you'll die? Because you see, the enemy of our souls doesn't really have much of an arsenal. He doesn't have a a lot of options for how to attack us. The only approach that he has is to lie about the character and the nature of God. Michael Williams is an Old Testament theologian, and he put it like this, Christ provides the lens through which both the truth and its cheap imitations come into focus. So what Paul is up to here is he's reminding us, he's reminding the Colossian believers about who Jesus is. So, excuse me, what does it mean then here in verse 15 that Jesus is the firstborn of creation? That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Again, as we confessed in the Nicene Creed to begin our service today, Jesus is not made. Jesus is not a created being but there are those from cults that call themselves Christian that try to point to a passage like this to say that Jesus was an elevated created being, but a created being nonetheless, and that's simply not the testimony of Scripture. We look again at John chapter 1, where John says, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word didn't become God. The Word has always been, before Abraham was I am, Jesus said. Jesus has always been the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Yahweh, the I am who revealed himself to Moses at Mount Horeb in the burning bush. So then what in the world does firstborn of creation mean? Well, Psalm 89.27 is helpful here. Psalm 89.27 is a messianic psalm. It's a prophecy about Jesus centuries before he took on flesh and dwelt among us. It says this, Speaking again of the Messiah, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The way firstborn is used in Scripture doesn't indicate being created, but having first place, having supremacy, preeminence. The same language is applied in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. In Exodus 4.22, Yahweh instructs Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Well, Israel wasn't his first creation, but he is giving the nation of Israel in that text first place. He's saying, Egypt, I don't care about your desires. Israel is my firstborn. Israel has first place. So that is the way Scripture uses this phrase. So what Paul's doing in Colossians 1.15 is saying that Jesus has first place in all things. When he says he is the firstborn of creation, and he's going to repeat this phrase later, When he says he's the firstborn, he says, Jesus has first place. This is not my house. This is Jesus' house. Amen? As the opening verses of Psalm 24 declare, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. But Paul doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 13 of Colossians 1 by telling us, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus isn't just the Alpha. He's also the Omega. He isn't just the beginning. He's also the end. He isn't just the author, but he is the perfecter of our faith. The heresy that sought to infiltrate the Colossians said, sure, Jesus got things started, but he's not enough. And Paul meets this claim head on when he says that Jesus not only created what we see, but also what we can't see. Now, without understanding some of the culture in which the Bible was written, again, we wouldn't necessarily know that this phrase, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, refers to classes of angels both those in heaven and those who rebelled and were cast out of God's presence. Well, it just so happens that Paul repeats part of this phrase in chapter 2, verse 10, where he explains that Jesus is head over rule and authority that he is over them. And then again in verse 15 of chapter 2, where we see that Jesus has, quote, disarmed the rulers and authority and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. This is the Jesus we serve, brothers and sisters. Amen? So since we've, been, uh, since we've seen from Colossians 2.18 that Paul is addressing, among other teachings, the worship of angels, and by reminding the believers that Jesus created the angels and rules over them, Paul is doing what he has referred to elsewhere as destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. This line of thinking is a very distinctively Paul way of thinking and writing. He says in Romans eleven thirty six, this is one of my favorite passages, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And sometimes I hate chapter divisions in our Bibles. They can be helpful to find where you're looking, but sometimes we read a verse like that and we think, amen, and close our Bibles and we go on about our day. But 1136 connects to the next verse, Romans 12.1. He says, from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Because all things are from him and through him and to him, consecrating our lives to him makes sense. It's reasonable. A pastor and author that I admire is R. Kent Hughes, and he asks this question in his commentary on Colossians. As a believer, is your life rational or irrational? Are you living totally for God? Or are you living outside of rationality? Are we living in a way that when our brothers and sisters in Christ look at us, would they say, that doesn't make sense. What you confessed earlier doesn't jive with what you are doing, with the way that you're living. So we live as living sacrifices, our reasonable service. Continuing on in verse 17 of Colossians 1, Paul tells us that Jesus is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Speaking of rationality, would you humor me for a moment while I uh, talk about something that is far beyond my pay grade, science. <laughs> I, uh, earlier this week, I sent a question uh, via text message to my brother-in-law. Uh, he is uh, a published writer Uh, He's a, a, a Bible and science teacher at a Christian school here in the metro. And I asked if he could help me understand where current scientific standards are in terms of explaining why the nucleus of an atom doesn't just fall apart. And this was his reply. Let me read. Scientists don't totally know why the nucleus of an atom holds together. Because it's comprised of protons, which have a positive charge, and neutrons, which don't have a charge. Particles that have the same charge, like a cluster of protons, typically repel each other, while opposite-charged particles attract. So to explain why these protons stay stuck together, instead of flying apart, scientists have postulated the existence of what they call the strong nuclear force, which holds the protons together in the nuclei of an atom. But they don't know. They've postulated this theory. There's something that's holding it together, but we don't know what it is. So what is that strong nuclear force? Well, Paul seems to have been well aware of the reason protons don't fly apart. He probably couldn't have even told you what an atom or a proton or a neutron or the nuclei of an atom is. It would have been foreign to him, but he was well aware of why the universe holds together. It's because Jesus is holding it all together. Is it uh, maybe a bit too simplistic for me to say it's because he's got the whole world in his hands? But Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, here's why this matters. Knowing Jesus as he has revealed himself in scripture gives us confidence in his character. And there's a word for knowing God. Theology. Theology is not a bad word, brothers and sisters. If anyone ever tells you, I don't need theology, I just need Jesus, I want you to ask them this simple question. Who is Jesus? Because the minute they begin to tell you who Jesus is, they're engaging in theology. There's nothing wrong with theology. What we do with that knowledge of God may be different. But knowing God as he has revealed himself to us in Scripture is of vital importance in the Christian life. So far, we've seen that Jesus is supreme over creation, the earth, But Paul takes this argument further when he explains in verse 18, quote, he is also the head of the body, the church. This leaves no room for disagreements in the body of Christ. So in the context of Colossians, if there were those who claimed to be within the household of faith, who claimed to be bought with the blood of the lamb, and yet brought some Foreign, self-righteous gospel of works. It was their teaching that proved <laughs> excuse me, that proved them to be wolves in sheep's clothing. And Jesus warned us to expect them, didn't he? Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew seven, beginning in verse fifteen. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you looking like sheep, but they're inwardly ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And Jesus, as head of the church, gets to say that. What is the fruit of a false prophet? It's teaching that contradicts the teaching of Jesus. It's teaching that contradicts the teaching of his appointed apostles and prophets. See, there is no head over this church other than Christ. No pastor, no president, no pope. Christ is the head of this church. In the second part of Colossians 1.18, Paul repeats a word that we saw earlier in verse 15. He, he calls Jesus the firstborn, this time from the dead. In the first section, he said he was the firstborn of all creation, and now he says he's the firstborn from the dead. We're beginning to see some of the poetic beauty of this passage. Some have considered this portion of scripture a, a hymn that the early church may have sung. And that's, that's somewhat disputed. We don't know if that's true or not, but at least what we can take away from it is that when Paul got talking about who Jesus is, he got poetic quick. And in that first section, we see that Jesus is the head over all creation. And in this second section of the passage we're reading today, we see that Jesus is the head over the new creation, the church. Jesus has first place, because he was raised to newness of life. He declared that to be so in a big and glorious and public way when he was resurrected three days after he was brutally murdered for your sins and mine. We see why he was given first place in verse 19. It says this, because it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The fullness of what? Maybe your translation reads different than mine. Mine just says it was... The Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in him. Fullness. Well, Colossians 2.9 explains it's the entire fullness of God's nature. And it wouldn't make an awful lot of sense for the fullness of God's nature to dwell in a body that is buried in a tomb, would it? And so the Father vindicated the Son by raising him in the Spirit. Physically, mind you, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, He ate with them. He allowed Thomas to touch the wounds in his hands and his side. He was resurrected physically. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we're going to have a resurrection like his someday. Verse 20 of our text makes this outstanding claim, that through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, if you're pay- paying close attention, you might be asking this question. If, if that is what it sounds like, is everyone going to be saved? Will there be anyone who is cut off from God's presence in eternity? Because it says he's reconciling all things to himself through the blood of his cross. Will everyone ultimately be saved? It's a very good question, but the answer is no. There are too many clear passages in Scripture which explain that there are those who will not ultimately be recipients of God's mercy, but will ultimately be recipients of his wrath. It's never a good idea to build a belief, to build a teaching or a doctrine on an unclear sentence like that. Say, well, it says he's reconciling all things to himself, so I guess that means that everyone's going to be saved. That was a, a heresy that was rejected early on in the life of the church, Look with me at Romans nine twenty two and 23. If you're fast, you can turn there, but I'll just read it to you quickly. What if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? See, there's actually a more important and significant meaning and understanding of the word reconciliation in Colossians 1. And to get a better understanding of it, we can look at other things that Paul has written. One of my favorite passages, again, is Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It says this, many of you will be familiar, for this reason, God exalted him. God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Here it is, so that... At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on Earth and under the Earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, reconciliation doesn't merely only mean God forgiving and forgetting. That's an important part of his reconciliation work. But there is an equally important part, and that is God's righteous justice. Do you believe that God is glorified when he saves undeserving sinners? Yeah. Do we believe that he's glorified when he gives justice that's due to those sinners? We do. We don't always talk about that aspect, though. But that is indeed part of this reconciliation that Paul's talking about. An example that I often use to, to maybe help explain this is that when I leave today, if I back out my car and I run into one of your vehicles... There's going to be a cost associated with that damage, isn't there? Now, one of two scenarios may play out. You may come out and go, oh, Dan, I, I just paid that off. Uh, you're going you're gonna to have to pay to, to repair that. That would be understandable. That would be just, wouldn't it? Or maybe you come out and you show me mercy because you could tell that I got pretty hot wearing this jacket preaching under these lights. And Dan's already had a hard morning. I'm going to let him skate by on this one and just say, don't worry about it. Our insurance will cover it. But there's a cost one way or the other. See, we have sinned against God, and it's far worse than that we backed our vehicle into his. God doesn't need a car to begin with, but it's far worse than if we had backed our car into the Lord's proverbial vehicle and caused damage. We have sinned against an infinitely Holy God. And a price has to be paid. Now, we spoke this morning in my uh, Sunday school class. Um, Mike Paris mentioned 2 Corinthians 5 21 that says, uh, he, The Father made him, the Son who knew no sin, to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Somebody just kicked on the AC for me. That was really nice. You did that from your phone. <laughs> That's awesome. I I am hot, but I'm okay. It's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Dave's going, I just paid off my truck. I don't want, yeah. (laughs) So there's a cost though. There's a debt that is owed to God because we have sinned against him. It doesn't matter how big or how small that sin is. You see, in in the immediate, in the temporal, there are greater consequences for certain sins. But in eternity, all sin separates us from God. So if I steal a candy bar, the consequence for that is going to be pretty minimal compared to if I were to commit murder. But in eternity, all sin separates us from God because we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God when we are sinful. So this reconciliation that we're considering, God has prepared some as objects of mercy. He's prepared others as objects of his wrath. God is not unjust to require the person who backs into another person's vehicle to pay for the damage that they've caused. He doesn't owe mercy to any of us, but he gives mercy freely, joyfully. As a worship song from the 1990s said, this is one that I used to sing all the time, one day every tongue will confess you are God, one day every knee will bow, but still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. Every one of us are by nature sinners. I shared with our students this past Wednesday night that if you were to place two plates of food in the cage of a hungry lion, one plate with uh, raw red meat and the other plate with some nice arugula and spinach, maybe some green beans, which plate is that lion going to choose? the meat every time. Why? Because our nature dictates our desires. And as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, our nature is always prone towards sin and rebellion and hatred of God. So something has to happen in order for us to desire to please God. We have to be given a new nature. If you desire to be reconciled to Jesus, if you truly want to be part of the body over which he is the head, if historically you have always desired the plate of rebellion and now you desire the plate of righteousness, you don't get to take credit for that, brothers and sisters. God gets the glory because he's given you a new nature. It says, like the prophet Ezekiel said in chapter 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So let me ask you, does Christ have first place in your life? Are you living rationally? Are you living reasonably? or irrationally and unreasonably a helpful way to think about it is to consider what those closest to you would say if i were to ask 10 of your closest friends and family and coworkers what matters most to this person what would they say is it your phone is it your pride is it your job is it your comfort We can get an uh, an idea of the object of our worship by asking ourselves what matters most to us. What has preeminence, supremacy, first place in our lives? Tim Keller is an author and a pastor in uh, New York, and he, he put it like this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and I'll interject even ministry, and turns them into ultimate things good things into ultimate things. But our hearts, he continues, deify them. We make them into little gods as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security and safety and fulfillment if we can simply attain them. The reformer John Calvin similarly noted, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. So my question for us today boils down to this what am I placing my hope in? What has first place in my life?